again. This is Mike and podcast number six. Uh, number five we'll come back to. It's sort of in progress. And this will be part two of uh, what I loosely call a jazz history. Actually, this section, this podcast will be chronologically, generally, my favorite jazz. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to start way back in the, in the mid-20s where we kind of left off with the last one and work our way up through and just past big band music in the mid-40s. And we kicked off with uh, what is the dominant instrumental big band of the whole decade, 1930s. I say instrumental because Duke Ellington's band didn't feature to a great extent, or to the same extent, uh, soloists like Benny Goodman or Artie Shaw or Louis Armstrong, he arranged things and wrote songs and played them as an orchestra rather than featuring soloists. And of course we started off with a tune most people know or associate with Ellington called Take the A Train, or as Robin Williams called it in uh, Moscow and the Hudson, a great movie, uh, We Like Take A Train. <laughs> and uh, that's a really good arrangement of it. Now this stuff I'm going to play is generally chronologically, but some of the recordings are going to be from later, even into the 50s. But they were popular during the 30s, the songs were, even if this particular arrangement that I'm going to play of certain songs came much later. We left off in the last podcast, part one of jazz, pretty much uh, with the rise of... Uh, Louis Armstrong, who influenced everything through the rest of jazz history. He was like a super genius. Um, he changed the way people sang. He changed phrasing on the trumpet. He changed the way the trumpet was used in the orchestra. I think in 25 and 26, he played most of a year with the Fletcher Henderson band. And Fletcher Henderson is given credit, rightly, as starting the swing era, which began in the early 30s and gave rise to Goodman and Shaw and other groups. And what was swing about it was literally people swinging dancing, and dancing became the dominant form of entertainment as opposed to, say, listening people didn't want to listen they heard they heard the music but it it gave them a uh, a vehicle for movement and the music made them want to dance and Fletcher Henderson pretty much started that I'm gonna play some early Henderson with Louis Armstrong from 25 or 26 and then play something later of his and you can see the difference in the uh, let's call it it's more modern sounding it's smoother. It's uh, not so 20-ish. So let's hear Louis Armstrong with Fletcher Henderson uh, from 1925, say. And I want you to listen to Louis Armstrong, how far ahead he was. He was playing like they did in the 30s and 40s, but he was doing it in the mid-20s. That's why he, why he said to influence, playing from then on. Here's Fletcher Henderson's band from 1925 featuring Louis Armstrong with I'll See You in My Dreams. Listen to Armstrong. 
Nobody played trumpet like that in the mid-20s, not the style or with the technique or skill as Armstrong. He was featured, became featured as he played more with Fletcher Henderson's band uh, to the point where the arranger Don Redmond had to write arrangements specifically for him as kind of a framework uh, so he could be featured in more songs. Now I said that Fletcher Henderson is given credit for starting the swing era with his band and his arrangements. Obviously, that wasn't true in that recording or at that time. But I would play something, I think it's three or four years later, say around 1930, and you can see, well, one, of course, how much recording techniques had improved, but second, how much more modern uh, his, uh, his arrangement is. And it sounds more like big band jazz than the 1920s, you know, rinky-dink, uh, oop whoopy doop kind of da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know. Uh, he got out of that. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> or what? I don't even know what influenced him, but uh, it's a definite change. This next recording is from 1928, just three years later. Uh, Armstrong had left the band. And this is King Porter's Stomp, which was a really popular song. This was recorded many times, including by Benny Goodman. But this one is 1928, Fletcher Henderson. Listen to the, the style change. By the way, listening to it, you'd swear it was Louis Armstrong playing. It's not. This is three years later, and he'd left the band a couple years before this. But you can sure hear his influence in the style of the uh, trumpet player. From our perspective, that was what you could call quite an improvement. And it was not just quite an improvement, it led directly into the style of the uh, 30s big bands. When I say big bands, I'm talking about larger groups. I'm not talking about 40s big band music, which I don't even really consider jazz. It's not improvisational. It's pure arrangements to make people happy and let them dance a little bit, but it's not really jazz. Anyway, more on that later. I'm going to insert an interesting sidelight here. Um, jazz bands and rock bands uh, will uh, pick up different little riffs and melodies from all over the place. And uh, a short piece called Natural, and just a section of it, and see if you recognize it. And if you don't, I'll play where it came from just after.
sound familiar? Any guesses? Okay, listen. Recognize it? That's from George Gershwin's second most popular piece after Rhapsody in Blue, An American in Paris. It's toward the end of the piece, and it happens that An American in Paris premiered in 1928, and that happens to be the same year this was recorded. Happy coincidence, huh? <laughs> I'm going to have some fun and point out a couple more of these uh, much later chronologically. Right now we're in the early 30s decade. I'll stay there for a while. One big influencer of change in the early 30s was, of course, the Depression. And it took it, its uh, tolls on a lot of musicians who dropped out of the scene because bands dropped out. People didn't have any money. They did have one thing. They had a desire to dance. And this probably could be traced back to the, the ballrooms up in uh, Harlem, like the Savoy, which was integrated. I mean, you saw black people and white people dancing together. It was fantastic. It was the first integrated entertainment center in the country. And uh, people got into dancing and they wanted more dancing and they started to want swing music. Swing was the kind of music that made you want to move or swing and dance. And that's what people were really anxious for in the early 30s and that lasted most of the decade, probably up until World War II. Now, swing didn't have the simple syncopation of the 20s like the Dixieland bands and so forth. It had a more sophisticated, kind of, a, I guess, a complex syncopation that kind of a forward movement that got people on the dance floor. And one musician who recognized the need for swing music and produced it in abundance was Benny Goodman. Uh, who was later known as the King of Swing, with good reason. Goodman's uh, big break came in 1934. NBC wanted to start a radio show, a three-hour radio show called Let's Dance, three hours. What happened that Goodman didn't have enough sheet music, enough arrangements to fill a three-hour slot. So uh, an entrepreneur who really helped a lot of musicians named John Hammond, who was rich, but didn't give a hoot, he wanted to help musicians, asked Fletcher Henderson if he wanted to write arrangements for Goodman. And Henderson agreed because his band had, had disbanded uh, because he was in debt and couldn't afford to pay anybody due to the, due to the uh, depression. So Goodman hired Henderson to teach his musicians how to play swing music. Interesting, huh? The show was immensely popular. And from the title, Let's Dance, you can see where the public interest was. So what Goodman did was he knew the public liked to hear popular songs, just like today, you know, hear what's popular. And so he took popular songs, but he had Henderson arrange them in a swing manner, in a swing style. And so he had two things going for him. He had popular music, which people liked, and he arranged the music so it was danceable, so people could, in effect, swing to it. And that started the ball rolling. Now, Goodman didn't have high-powered musicians to feature in the band. What he did have were these fantastic arrangements and his own clarinet playing, which I'm going to demonstrate 
in in mass in a minute. He was he was a fantastic musician. I saw Benny Goodman. I saw Benny Goodman with a Phoenix Symphony in uh, like God 1962 or something. So I got to see Benny Goodman playing clarinet, and he played um, Debussy's clarinet concerto. I mean, what what a memory! <laughs> Just to have done that and actually seen the man play. Before I get into Goodman, and I'm going to get into him pretty heavily, uh, I want to mention one more musician uh, from the late 20s. Somebody you probably know, Bix Beiderbeck from Davenport, Iowa. He was white and idolized Louis Armstrong, as most trumpeters did. But the difference is, Bix Beiderbeck was nearly as good as Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong loved the guy. They never got to play together because of the stupid segregation laws back then. White musicians and black musicians couldn't play together. But uh, Armstrong thought he was fantastic. A soft spot in my heart for a big spider back he's just one of those tragic figures that you can't get out of your head after you hear a little about his life story he died at 28 which is reminiscent of you know Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix I think who all died at 27 it's uh one of those it goes to the territory things I guess my my dad told me about many of his friends who died of alcoholism uh, good musicians and that was the fate of Bix Beiderbeck, 28 years old. He never achieved like national fame like some prominent musician from the 30s. Uh, what you just heard was recorded in 1927. He bounced around from Gene Goldkett to Frankie Trumbauer, uh, his close friend for life, and played with White, Paul Whiteman for a while, but was never, I think, recognized for what he was, except by people like Louis Armstrong. And what you just heard was uh, one of his most popular performances called Singing the Blues. I'm going to read something, a couple of paragraphs from Wikipedia about him and how he died. There's a memorial, I guess. Beiderbeck died in his apartment number 1G 43 to 3046th Street in Sunnyside, Queens, New York, on August 6th, 1931. The week had been stifling hot, making sleep difficult. Suffering from insomnia, Beiderbeck played the piano late into the evenings both to the annoyance and the delight of his neighbors. On the evening of August 6th at about 9.30 p.m., his rental agent, George Craslow, heard noises coming from across the hallway. His hysterical shouts brought me to his apartment on the run, Craslow told Philip Evans in 1959. He pulled me in and pointed to the bed. His whole body was trembling violently. He was screaming that there were two Mexicans under the bed with, with long daggers. To humor him, I looked under the bed, and when I rose to assure him there was nothing there, 
He staggered and fell, a dead weight, in my arms. I ran across the hall and called in a woman doctor, Dr. Habersky, to examine him. She pronounced him dead. And so it goes. Beiderbeck also played uh, some piano. And he wrote a composition called In a Mist. It's the only piano recording of him in existence. And the influence here from Debussy is obvious. And that attracted me immediately back when I was a Debussy freak, when I was a teenager. Uh, I'm going to play some of it. from the Wikipedia, a couple paragraphs. To most youngsters in college, the weird flourishes that Bix's fingers executed on trumpet and piano were expressive. They could hear the lilting melody of youth that formed a smooth background for his fantastic caricatures in sound. Hundreds of young collegians who couldn't recall a strain of Beethoven or Wagner could whistle Bix Beiderbecke's choruses. In the world of professional popular music, Bixie was an artist comparable to Chrysler, Fritz Chrysler, in the field of conventional music. Paul Whiteman called him the finest trumpet player in the country. Perhaps Bixie's death at the age of 28 is also symbolic of the futility of the jazz mad generation's quest for self-expression. And I'll add that the 30s also became a time of bands as opposed to soloists. And we'll get into that right now with some Benny Goodman, Benny Goodman Orchestra recordings. And how about his theme song? Dance. I'm going to give up uh, pinpointing exact years here because the styles, hmm, well, in my opinion, the styles didn't progress that much. Different bands had different styles, but the, uh, the swing feeling and style had been established. So just say these are all from the 30s and some from the late 30s. Mm-hmm. 
that's the Jersey bounce from obviously a uh, much later recording probably from the late 40s uh, of his band he's not featured there but the arrangements so great I had to play it now for some quintessential beautiful amazing ingenious clarinet playing this is so great this is uh, part of undecided I love this this uh, is a five minute long piece I'm including the whole thing because it's so great and it's it's the best Benny Goodman I've heard so uh, following this we'll hit some Artie Shaw who came into competition and surpassed him as the most popular jazz band in America uh, in the early 40s and wind up with a Duke Ellington mix of several songs parts of several songs and I've got to throw in some Art Tatum <laughs> That's, and that'll bring the show to an outrageous god I don't know 35 minutes or something I promised shorter programs but uh, the way I see it if you're still with me you don't mind listening to more and if not you dropped out a long time ago so here's the whole five minutes of Undecided with Benny Goodman
Okay, what you just heard was a test. If that didn't thrill you beyond belief and were pinned to your seat unable to move, either you know nothing about jazz at all, sort of like watching a baseball game without knowing the rules, okay, I can accept that, or you don't have a note of music in your soul. I'm sorry for you, but that's the way it is. That performance is such that you listen to it and think, God, that was really good. That was great. And then it gets better. Um, I've, I've heard that recording several times, and each time I hear it, it gets better. And I'll probably listen to it again on my own after the podcast. That has the same effect as the last movement of Mozart's Symphony Number no. 41, the Jupiter. You listen to it, and it just keeps going and getting better and better and better and more complex and more beautiful. So there you have it, five minutes of a masterpiece. I mentioned that Artie Shaw, it's hard to believe after what we just listened to, but Artie Shaw surpassed Goodman as the number one jazz band in America. Um, I'm going to play, he's fantastic too, his clarinet playing, different style. Some people, there were two groups of musicians, according to my father at the time. Uh, one was, you know, the Shaw group, and one was the Goodman group. Dad was more in the Shaw group. He said Goodman had, had a better beat, but Shaw played prettier, more melodic. So it's a totally personal choice, and I will now give you a choice. I'm going to play Artie Shaw's biggest hit, which is called Begin the Begin, and I'll play a couple minutes of it. I think you can hear what uh, the comment about Shaw that my dad made uh, means here. It's very melodic, very beautiful, and that's a great arrangement. Another thing that's going on is you can start to hear the effects of big band arrangements, which will lead into big band jazz, as they call it. Uh, you still have people like Shaw and Goodman uh, featured doing the, the solos that really, the improvisational stuff that, that really makes it jazz. That disappeared over the next few years and led people who really love jazz in another direction into bebop. And uh, 
that's got to be the next podcast bebop and progressive and miles davis and uh, charlie parker and so forth i'm going to add one more Artie shaw cut here uh i think this was his theme song it's called nightmare very different and again i'll play part of this not the whole thing but to give you the flavor of it with some really good clarinet on there now let's do some Duke Ellington and uh, I'm going to read a little introduction to him because his career is so just expansive and eclectic that uh, I'm not the one to talk about it Uh, Ken Burns in the uh, jazz series did an excellent job with Duke Ellington and what I learned from that is that he came from a middle upper class family who his mother doted on him and uh, helped him out in any way she could with music. He was pretty much the antithesis of the uh, standard jazz musician figure, you know, uh, poor, struggling. He was a a gentleman, well-dressed, lots of women, lots of money, lots of everything, drank fine wines, and boy, was he talented. Here's a little bit from the uh, internet. One of the originators of big band jazz, Duke Ellington was an American composer, pianist, and band leader who composed thousands of scores over his 50-year career. He lived from 1899 to 1974. 
Uh, he's a major figure in jazz, of course, and he composed thousands of songs for stage screen and the contemporary songbook. He created one of the most distinctive ensemble songs in Western music and continued to play what he called American music until shortly before his death in 74. He was raised by two talented musical parents in a middle-class neighborhood of Washington, D.C. At the age of seven, he began studying piano, earned the nickname Duke for his gentlemanly ways. Inspired by his job as a soda jerk, he wrote his first composition, Soda Fountain Rag, at the age of 15. Despite being awarded an art scholarship to the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, he followed his passion for ragtime and began to play professionally at age 17. That would be in 1916, right? In the 20s, he uh, performed in nightclubs as the bandleader of a sextet, a group in which um, grew to a 10-piece ensemble. He made hundreds of recordings with his bands, appeared in films and on radio, and toured Europe on two occasions in the 30s. Ellington's fame rose to the rafters in the 40s when he composed several masterworks, including Concerto for Cootie, Cottontail, and Coco. And I'm going to they list some songs here that he did. I'm going to do a medley of, of most of those songs, plus a couple, uh, after, uh, after this. Perhaps Ellington's most famous jazz tune was Take the A-Train, which was composed by Billy Strayhorn, who composed a lot of his stuff, and recorded for commercial purposes in 1941. It refers to the A uh, subway line in New York City, which took the place of Ellington's previous signature tune, Sepia Panorama, which I, I'm not familiar with that. It was Ellington's sense of musical drama that made him stand out. His blend of melodies, rhythms, and subtle sonic movements gave audiences a new experience, complex yet accessible jazz that made the heart swing. There's some material about his autobiography. He got uh, 12 Grammy Awards and 9 while he was alive. Well, three after you're dead there, Duke. Congratulations. Okay, let's hear this uh, group of songs that I kind of put together, parts of songs. I'll list the titles after the uh, series is done. There's a short break between songs. And these are songs that either he or Billy Strayhorn wrote. I think maybe they wrote all of them. So here we go.
Hard to believe that uh, those guys, Ellington, Billy Strayhorn, wrote all those songs. And I think they did write all those songs, so if somebody says, wait, he didn't write that, that's not hard to believe, he didn't write them all. I think he wrote them all, or sure as heck made them famous. Okay, the list of songs you just heard in order of playing were In a Sentimental Mood, I Got It Bad, That Ain't Good, Caravan, Mood Indigo, Cottontail, Perdido, Chelsea Bridge, Don't Get Around Much Anymore, In a Mellow Tone, In My Solitude, Prelude to a Kiss, and Sophisticated Lady. And these are just like a handful of the hundreds and hundreds of songs he wrote but these are ones that come to mind as I was looking at the lists uh, that were at least to me the most popular and the show opened with Take A Train <laughs> so I didn't include that in the uh, mix okay let's turn to let's see one last person Edward 44 minutes my god okay maybe the greatest piano player who ever lived was Art Tatum. He was blind in one eye and could barely see out of the other. There's a story that I've heard several times and it was in the Ken Burns show. Uh, Fats Waller was playing in a club. He looked up, he stopped playing and said, ladies and gentlemen, something like that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to give up my seat now because God is in the house, referring to Art Tatum. And listening to him play, you might get that idea. He does impossible things on the piano. Two selections coming up, one complete and the other just a minute to show you what this guy is capable of. The first is She's Funny That Way, played as you've never heard it before.
the thing to note here about Art Tatum is obviously his technique. I mean, he does, as I said, impossible things, uh, runs that, that go all over the place and come back exactly where they're supposed to be. And he plays chords that don't belong there and changes from chord to chord that don't belong there. And they sound great. And now here's a version of Tiger Reg played at breakneck speed. And I'm just playing this to show you what he is capable of. I mean, I, I listen to it and I think, holy, I mean, the tune is there. It's kind of hard to follow because he's, he's, he goes all over the place with it. But uh, give it a listen. not possible right but uh, I did not speed that up with a computer or anything that's uh, real-time uh, magic it's got to be magic because nobody can play that fast now people listen to technique like that and they say oh my god that's he's marvelous but they're missing the chords and the way he goes from one thing to another and makes it sound perfect it's not just how fast he goes or how fast his fingers are but that's what most people listen to. So it's time for a little lecture about technique and people. People generally cannot tell good from bad as they see it without measuring or analyzing. Um, it's kind of like the inchworm measuring the marigolds. You know, you, you stop and see how beautiful they are. They can measure them. They can measure the music, but they can't. They don't get what's in the music and that's why technique is so impressive when they hear Wynton Marcellus on trumpet play Carnival in Venice they say oh my god he's marvelous wow listen to that but there's nothing there it's just technique technique by itself is nothing you need technique to be able to do what you want to do you need technique to embrace your creativity your creative ideas because without the technique, you can't play what you feel or hear in your head. But if you have nothing in your head to play, all the technique in the world isn't going to help. You can't improvise. You can just play a lot of notes. And a lot of, a lot of piano players play a lot of notes, and people are impressed, and they're missing it. So that's my little short lecture on technique. Okay. We're at um, 52 minutes and 20, 39 seconds. So I'm going to stop this. I'll go out with, uh, 
I'm going to go out with a, a preview of the next show, which gets into uh, big band music. I'll make that part as short as I can because everybody's heard that stuff dozens of times. And, you know, it's not jazz. It's just it's beautiful arranging. And Glenn Miller did beautiful arranging. But it's not really jazz. There's no improvisation in it uh, until you get to bebop and people start to play as musicians again independently. So I'm going to go out with Charlie Parker's Ornithology. Okay? And I'll see you in number seven, I hope. And I hope you really, really kind of enjoyed this. I, I didn't talk as much as I played this time. Ta-da! That was hard to do because I like to talk. So I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>